Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, well, come on back. As you come on back, our, uh, our, our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 3. It's found on page 256 in the Red Bibles. As you turn there, I'll confess to you, I am part of the cultural movement that is the pumpkin spice craze. <gasps> oh, yeah, I know. I already, I already, I've already bought the pumpkin spice jam from Aldi. It's quite good. A little bit of toast, melted butter, then the jam. I have the, oh, I actually have the pumpkin spice butter too. So I can do like pumpkin spice butter and then pumpkin spice jam. Yes. And uh, I have some pumpkin spice cookies from Woodman's. I'm not uh, ashamed to rejoice at everything being pumpkin spice. So in the spirit of this, here is my pumpkin spiced sermon. Um, I saw a marquee as I drove by that said, pumpkin spice sermons are back. No, sadly, rather than being filled with uh, spiced fall tastiness, our text today is riddled with sin, confusion, and I pray will bring us strength as it is God's word meant to speak into our lives. So I'm not sure what your background is uh, spiritually, but I grew up in a church with my father as a pastor. And for me, as a young child um, and a young teen, church meant family moments, good friends, good snacks, good music, cozy Christmas traditions. But eventually this pretty picture was dispelled when a sin caused the church to lose members, church staff to leave, and would impact how my family saw the church for the rest of my life. Our passage today should shock us and cause us to question why God would choose anyone to carry out his will, much less to represent him. We have in the text a polygamist, a murderer, and a man whose loyalty to God is more fragile than a middle school dating relationship. And this, this is God's chosen people. And if you call yourself a Christian, whoa, this is your people too. And we've got to own that. So we can't help but ask, what does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous? Let's go ahead and read our text from 2 Samuel. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and the second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethriam of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. 
Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day, I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with fault, with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I, w- I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come and see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, and they, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. Now Joab and all the army that was with him came, and it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. <clears throat> then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in to, and to know all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, but David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there... He struck him in the stomach so that he died, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. 
And, David, and King David followed the bier, and they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Nair. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are, far more, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Let's pray. God, as we unpack this text, uh, we ask you for mercy and forgiveness as we grow in our recognition just of how much we have rebelled against you. And realize, Lord, also how profound your love and grace for us is. Pray this in your name. Amen. It's a long text. It's like a third of the sermon. Uh, so what does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous? Our text gives us three examples. Let's look at David first. And I'm actually going to mention some of David's impactful and better moments as a king before we dive into the muck, actually. So David wrote 73 psalms of the Bible. He was called a man after God's own heart, as our sermon series um, reflects for us. He shows great faith in the face of danger, considered David and Goliath and the many enemies that he's slain. It is him who finally defeats Israel's greatest enemies, including the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Edomites, the Amalekites, and secures the promised land, which was God's original call for Israel back in, in Deuteronomy and Numbers and uh, Joshua and Judges. And it is him of whom it is said that from his line, a king shall never leave the throne. It is from his line that Jesus is born. What a guy. Okay, hearing that, let's look at the today's text about him then. Verse 2 through 5 give a picture of his offspring, which is a common historical practice, actually, listing the offspring of a king at the start of a reign to give insight into potential future succession. However, the list also brings to light the sad and awful reality that David had multiple wives. We also know that David was married to Michael, Saul's daughter. Verses 13 through 16 tell the story of, of him requesting to be reunited with her. And a brief note on Michael's current husband, Paul Tiel, from our text. While Saul was trying to kill David back in 1 Samuel verse, chapter 25... Uh, Saul gives Mike, Saul, Michael's father, who had originally given Michael to David, Saul then takes Michael back and then gives her to Paltiel. And so while Paltiel is grieved by her being sent away to David, she is originally David's wife from 1 Samuel 18. So while she is still his rightful wife and David's not robbing a man of his husband, this still raises the issue, though, of polygamy. David here alone has seven wives, and this is terrible. It's also clear from the text, knowing based off of who the daughters of these, who the father of these women are, is that David is, is marrying them for political advancement. 
also common practice in that day and age. But where is the biblical condemnation for this wrongdoing? Where is the explicit command? Some people say, I, where, where in the Old Testament does it say that it's, it's wrong to, be, to practice polygamy? So first, there is an explicit law for kings against kings acquiring many wives in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17. So in this first way, David is already found guilty before an explicit command. But what about a non-king? Let's, take, let's just address that briefly for a moment, as, since polygamy is in our text. While there is no explicit law written in the Old Testament, the Bible is clear in the New Testament that polygamy is wrong in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, as well as, you could say, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created man, Adam, and Eve. The Bible is thirdly clear, however, also in the Old Testament, about how loudly it speaks on the destructiveness of polygamy. We can look to the examples of Abraham, Jacob, Gideon, Solomon, or if you follow our story here today, we see many destructive consequences. We can look to the sons easily, firstly. Three of David's sons are explicit examples of this. Amnon has an incestuous relationship with Absalom's sister. Absalom then murders him and rises against David and takes the throne for a small season. Adonijah, at the end of David's life, sets him up as king while David is on his deathbed when Solomon, another king listed here, or son listed here, should not be king. All because of David's polygamy. Tim Keller summarizes it saying the following, and he, he, he takes the case of polygamy by looking at the book of Genesis. So he says this, when you read the book of Genesis, you'll see in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc. Having multiple wives is an absolute disaster, socially, culturally, <clears throat> spiritually, emotionally, physio, uh, psychologically, and relationally. You begin to realize what the book of Genesis and other books, including our own, is doing. It is subverting, not supporting the ancient institution of polygamy in every turn. So here we have David, one who, condemn, who condemnably marries multiple wives for political gain, creating certain heartache, sorrow, and suffering. But here we have David, who is still raised up as king. And this is actually a significant point in our passage also. It is here that we actually see David is called king for the first time. And the author draws special attention to this at the end of our passage by repeating it seven times. Starting in verse 31, uh, it says, And King David followed the bier, and the king lifted up his voice, and the king lamented, skipping down to verse 36, everything the king did pleased the people, not the king's will to put, death, to, put, to, put to death Abner. And the king said to his servants, and the king said, And I was gentle, though anointed king. There's much more in our passage here. Um, there's, there's, this passage is very complex and mixed with David's sin and as well as his uh, godly traits, but it should make us question why in the world would he ever be chosen for such an impactful position as king? Jacob as well, what does it look like to be a part of a church where there is no one righteous? It looks like impactful leaders in need of a savior. Many of you may be familiar this, with this, but I chose to mention this um, example because this person too was an impactful leader who bore our name, the name of Christian. Ravi Zacharias had a significantly impactful ministry, authoring over 30 books, hosted radio programs, and was a powerful witness to the faith. 
He died in 2020. But in 2021, it was reported that he hid hundreds of pictures of women, wrongfully misused ministry donations to fund other sexual misconduct, and was even accused of rape. Ravi's actions were abhorrent. And as consequences, his ordination was revoked posthumously. His books are no longer published, and the ministry that bore his name is under a new name. Ravi, like David, was complex. His ministry impact was significant, but his sin was grievous and deeply wounding. I do not know the heart of Ravi. He claimed to follow Christ, but I do know that he was an impactful Christian leader, and I do know that he was in desperate need of a savior and a sinner, just as King David was. What does it look like to be a part of a church where there is no one righteous? It looks like impactful leaders in need of a savior. Church, people will influence you profoundly. They should. It's how God designed it to be. They will strengthen you in your faith, but their capacity for sin is no less than King David's. And while this should grieve us deeply, and while we as Christians should rise to action against such corruption when necessary, one thing it should not do is it should not shake our foundation. It should not bring us to question our faith. The Bible here warns us of the capacity of sin in leaders. You are part of a church where there is no one righteous, no, not one, not even the leaders. Preaching this gives me great pause and strikes fear in my heart as I stand up here claiming to be a leader. So to myself and to leaders, humbly, with fear and trembling, we accept the call that God has given, recognizing firstly the sin that we do have and must repent of. But secondly, also recognizing our capacity for even greater sin. That were it not for the grace of God, we could easily fall into the worst of sins. May we never point the finger and say, good thing that will never be me. It is God's mercy alone that that is not me right now. It is only God's mercy. My capacity for sin is just as great. Church, should you see your leaders falling into sin, please, with gentleness and meekness, address it. Do not let it remain hidden. How incredible it is that God would even use leaders with such, with such capacity for sin to build his kingdom. How humbling it is that God would save any of us and in saving us, then equip us and enable us to do all the more wonderful things to build his kingdom in each and every one of our unique giftings that includes leaders of the church. What else does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous beyond having impactful leaders in need of a savior? Let's look at Abner next. Abner is an interesting guy, and we should note a few things. Uh, his faithfulness is an issue. He's the one of whom I said his loyalty is more fragile than a middle school dating relationship, but it's more complex than that for a number of reasons. First, Abner is faithful to the wrong person. Up until this point, he was siding with the rebellion against King David and ultimately against God. Second, he actually knew he was on the wrong side. Most people, when they pick a side, they pick that side because they believe in it and its causes. 
But in verses 9 through 10, Abner confesses that he knew God had already promised to give the throne to David. Third, Abner's faithfulness and his loyalty is, is fairly weak. It took an accusation against him to decide to defect and surrender an entire kingdom. Now granted, the accusation was actually, uh, it was considered only the, 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 the right of a king uh, to have a concubine. So in Abner, um, going into uh, Rizpah, it was considered Abner claiming the throne for himself. So the accusation was strong, but it is still not reason to defect and surrender an entire kingdom. It is not my place to discern if a person is a true follower of God. And Abner, no doubt, considered himself a part of God's people. But every testimony stands against him being a part of God's people, including the testimony that he fought against God, fought against God's people, until it no longer served his agenda. But while Abner may have thought he was a follower of God, and he was not, or if he was, regardless, he was an impactful individual, like David. Through him, all of Israel agrees to establish David as king in verse 19. But let us also notice David's response to Abner, regardless of Abner's position before God. Upon seeking to surrender Israel to him, David received him warmly. Verse 20 through 21 says, He prepared a feast, broke bread with him, and uh, this was a significant sign of fellowship. We also see David genuinely grieved at Abner's death by mourning in verses 31 through 39. So what does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous? And the, uh, what the, the next slide will be wrong, actually. I changed it. Uh, it looks like seeing image bearers in need of a savior. What does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous? It also looks like seeing image bearers in need of a savior. Philip Randolph was a tremendously important historical figure working closely alongside Martin Luther King Jr. He was actually uh, uh, the, one of the key organizers in the march on Washington. King Jr. even called him the dean and the chief. In doing all of these things, Philip bore the image of God and advanced the causes that God had called the people of God to advance. However, it was also Philip Randolph who said, Our aim is to appeal to reason. We consider prayer nothing more than a fervent wish. Philip was much more outspoken in his lack of faith than Abner. But like Abner, he pursued causes that built God's kingdom. So church, this is one more thing we must not deceive ourselves in. First, let us affirm that non-believers still bear the image of God and can do powerful and amazing things for God's kingdom. If God can use a sinner like you and like me to build his kingdom, we should not put it past him to use a sinner who is unrepentant. They're still image bearers of God, and in this way, they carry the capacity to do things that bear God's image, though their hearts do it in a bent manner unto their own destruction. Secondly, there's an unhealthy perspective in Christian culture today, which is thankfully fading more and more, that to be friends with a non-believer or to welcome them into your home is something that is dangerous and we should not do. But to hold this stance cuts at the belief that they too bear the image of God and are deserving of their love and attention. It also cuts, at how David, cuts against how David responds to Abner in this passage. 
receives his enemy with food and fellowship. And it cuts against how our Savior lived every moment of his life as a friend of sinners, eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, poor, and hurting. Do you break bread and have fellowship with non-Christians? Let me encourage you to pursue a relationship. If you stop doing Matthew meals, reignite this plan again to have them over to your house again. What does it look like to be part of a church where there is no unrighteous? It looks like seeing image bearers in need of a savior. Let's lastly take a closer look at Joab. I personally have many questions that our text does not answer. Why does, Do- why does David keep Joab after his commander, after uh, chapter 2? And now in chapter 3, after he murders Abner. Why is Joab not punished more? But here, I, the text does not tell us. But here's what the text does tell us. Joab is a very wounded, very hurting individual. He harbors hate and unforgiveness in his heart towards Abner for the killing of his brother, and it leads him to murder. The text is very clear. It gives us no space to question his motive. This is stated both in verse 27 and again in verse 30. Joab is an individual very broken by sin with a wounded heart and an individual very guilty of sin with a murderous heart. He is both sinned against and is one who sins. And even though Joab was hurting, his wrongdoing was still, still, will still be repaid. Our passage ends on this very last note. The Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness. While Joab was deeply grieved over the killing of his brother Asahel by Abner's hand, it did not justify Joab's, or Abner's murder, even in the midst of war against Abner, his very enemy. What does it look like to be part of a church where there is no one righteous? It looks like hurt people hurting others in need of a savior. Friday night, I found myself hurt, very, in a very petty, pettily, so, very petty. We had some friends over, and the night had wrapped up, and we just put the kids down, and uh, I, we had to do a lot of cleaning. It was already getting late. Shiloh's Bedtime routine is a half hour, and that's my fault for making it so long. (laughs) One more song, okay. But I was frustrated. I felt like I, I felt like the time I could have had on Friday night was robbed and taken from me and turned into chores, and I, I did not hide my anger or even suppress it. I impatiently grabbed the wet ones, and if anyone who knows a pack of wet ones and uses them, I use them to change Shiloh's diaper, and I whip the wet one out from the pack. And I throw it out in front of my family, just knowing that it would get stuck unless I violently pull it out. Because, you know, sometimes if you pull out a wet one, you pull out 18 wet ones. When I'm angry and that happens, I'm like enraged at the wet ones. So I prevent that. I was in a bad mood. I was hurt. And Rondelet had the audacity to ask me what my plans were for the rest of the night. And if I was going to work on the sermon. Seriously? My plans are to get the kids down, to do the chores. I have no time left to relax. And maybe if I'm no longer angry, maybe, yeah, maybe then I'll work on the sermon for Sunday. Incredible mindset to do God's work, isn't it? Call it what you want. 
angry, feeling robbed, hurt. But I lashed out and hurt Rondelet for her very fair question. And I wasn't even hurting for a good reason. I was hurting for dumb reasons. But this is what feeling hurt, robbed, and angry did to me, just as it did to Joab. It blinded me as it blinded him, and it led to hurting others. This is the economy of pain in our life, is it not? The suffering we bring into other people's lives is never without reason or cause. It's provoked. They acted so horribly against me. Surely you would not have had those harsh words with your spouse unless they had not shown any interest in that thing for years. Time to bring out the big guns. Show them all the ways they've hurt you, right? If I prove my point loudly enough or angrily enough or use enough words, then they'll change. You may not be ready to murder someone out of vengeance and a hurting heart, but the steps we take into how we hurt others is no different. It could be as something as simple as me having more chores than I want. What wounds do you carry? Have you considered how they might fuel your wrongful actions towards others? What grace are you unwilling to extend to another? Do you use past wounds to justify present actions for which there is no righteous reason? Do you believe that you don't need a savior? You don't need Jesus. You don't need to be rescued. I've suffered enough. I've paid my dues. Is the world against you? Does someone owe you something? Please do not hear me justifying at all the person that may have wronged you. And don't hear me saying that you have not suffered. That's not the case. I have no doubt many of you have, and, the, and, there, is, there, and there very likely is a wrongdoer who bears, bears guilt. But there is no wound or hurt that you may experience that is deep enough to justify our own wrongdoing. In our hurts, we are often blind to our own reasoning to wound and wound others as Joab was blind and wounded others in his anger. The Lord will repay the evildoer according to his deeds. The last verse of our text says, whenever scripture ends on a note like that, it's, it's, it's done to draw attention if whenever a passage ends on that note. So church, let us, be, let us have attention drawn to it. Let us fear with a right heart and recognize the, 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 the punishment that is due wrongdoing. God will repay the evildoer according to his deeds. King David grieved the death of an image bearer, but it grieved the heir to David's throne even more. Our, and death is due us for, as well for our deeds. Death of the image bearer grieved David's, heart, grieved David's heir so much that in the very last verse of the passage came to pass, not upon the broken leaders who deserve it, not upon the ones with little loyalty, not upon the hurting one who hurt others, but upon the king who reigns forever. From the pettiest reason to be angry, 
to the leader who falls into corruption, Jesus offers forgiveness and new life to all who repent and cry out for help. He bore the repayment due the evildoer. Is this not the testimony of all Christians? You know, as I entered, as I read this passage, it blew my mind that these are the people God would use. But it should blow our mind as well that we bear, you and I bear the name of Christ as our new identity. But we bear the name of Christ in Christian, not because of our claim to be sinless, but rather because of our claim to be saved by Christ. And we call him our king who reigns on the throne forever and ever, the heir of David. We call him Lord. What does it look like to be part of a church where no one is righteous? It looks like leaders in need of a savior. It looks like image bearers in need of a savior. And it looks like hurt people hurting others in need of a savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we cry out mercy. Mercy, Lord, first to have eyes to see our sin. And then mercy, Lord, to turn to the cross to there to find grace and forgiveness for all the wrong, Lord, that will be repaid. And the Lord, mercy to respond with joy and thanksgiving. Receiving with joy the renewal of our hearts that you've offered unto us. Lord, may that renewal of our hearts be true. May it cause us to humbly say, I would go there if it weren't for the grace of God. May it cause us humbly to say, Lord, I'm hurting. Let me not hurt others. And may it give us eyes to see this in all the more, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.